I'm Kate Daniels. Gary Tobbs is a science journalist and author. His interest has been drawn to health topics and the things that impact our having good health. His newest adventure and research has been on sugar, that sweet, sweet thing that is the downfall of many and the seriousness of our health crisis that we are facing. Gary explores this in his new book, The Case Against Sugar. This is critically important to us, and I am pleased that Gary joins us today to stimulate our thinking on this important topic. Gary Tobbs, good morning. Thank you so greatly for being with us this morning and for all the wonderful work that you provide into our lives. Well, thank you for having me, Kate. I am really looking forward to this opportunity because this is not necessarily a new subject to me on the case of sugar, but it may be to some people, and I think this is probably prime time to really be addressing the topic once again from the uh, view of your new book, The Case Against Sugar. And this might instill some fear in uh, a certain part of our population, mightn't it? Uh, It might, yes. Um, Well, that's... Yeah, what I say in the beginning of this book is it's more or less, if this were a legal case, this would be the prosecution's argument for the damage that sugar could be doing, not just our population, sugar consumption, not just our population, but worldwide. So I make a pretty strong argument. I do try to acknowledge where the data um, aren't as clear as one would wish, which is virtually everywhere in this particular case. But, yeah, I I will probably have the effect of scaring some people into staying away from sugar. And hopefully that is definitely the case. That is really the case for probably the majority of us because one of the things we do know is sugar is insidious. You read the labels and they have all these funny names, but sugar invariably is in most of the processed foods that we would pick up off the shelf. Yeah, virtually everything in the middle aisles of the supermarket that uh, comes in in any kind of packaging or box or, uh, I mean, with the exception of bottled water, virtually everything has some kind of sugar in it to different degrees. And one of the stories I try to tell in this book is the history of how we got to this point where sugar just completely saturated our diet because it's on a humankind scale. It's a brand new phenomenon. It dates back a couple hundred years, and it's not until the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century that sugar becomes cheap enough and that it kind of explodes. And, you know, if you think about it, there's all these industries that were founded in the 19th century. So the candy industry, the chocolate industry, the soft drink industry, and then um, the uh, chocolate industry, the ice cream. Uh, prior to about 1850, people just didn't eat these foods. They didn't exist. I mean, prior to the 1960s, the idea of eating sugared cereal, or 1950s sugared cereals were, were virtually non-existent. And so you know, it's like our whole entire diet from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep was transformed into dessert over the course of 150 years, and then we have these obesity and diabetes epidemics that are worldwide, and every, every population that eats a Western diet like we eat eventually experiences these explosive increases in obesity and diabetes. And somehow our 
public health authorities sort of decided to blame it on everything but sugar, which is also part of this kind of crazy story I tell, how this prime suspect in these two disorders was always kind of vaguely thought of as something we shouldn't eat. Maybe it should be a treat, you know, you should, clearly shouldn't let your kids have everything they want. You should ration their sugar. But that's the worst we would ever say about it. And so that this book was written to kind of try and put that whole story in perspective and direct the arguments that come in the right direction, to what I think is the right direction. And that is that we need to be aware of how really deadly this much sugar consumption, I mean, it's huge. The amount, the poundage that any of us consumes in a given year. And so here, as we begin a new year, we might consider that wanting to at least cut it uh, in half, if if not even, of course, more so than that. Well, and that's the question. Um, you know, we got to the point, sugar consumption, and by sugar, just to clarify, virtually everything in this story needs to be clarified. It's so difficult to talk about it without confusing. I don't know if you remember about 10 years ago, everybody was blaming high fructose corn syrup for obesity and the obesity epidemic. And, you know, high fructose corn syrup is just another variation of sugar, what we think of as sugar, which is a variation, two carbohydrates called glucose and fructose that are bonded together in a sugar molecule and are, are free-floating in high fructose corn syrup. But these, the FDA calls them all caloric sweeteners because they have calories in them, and the fructose makes them sweet. And by 1999, we were the, the food industry was supplying about 153 pounds of this stuff per person in the United States. So every for every single individual, the, from babies on to centenarians, the food industry was producing 150-some-odd pounds of sugar. It's come down since then, which is a good thing. We, right around 1998-99 was when we really became aware that we had an obesity epidemic on our hands, and that awareness, I think, has contributed to this slow decrease in sugar consumption. But it's a simply unprecedented number. I mean, again, if you go back to, say, 1810, the number is going to be around 10 pounds per capita per year. So basically, we're consuming in two weeks, or one week, what we consumed, two weeks, what we consumed in an entire year 200 years ago. And like I said, doing it in an entirely different size. So clearly, you can make the argument that, I mean, clearly we should consume less of it. I mean, it just, it's a, even if it's, well, if it's harmless, then it gets complicated. It is. It gets complicated. But but it's not really harmless because while the medical profession isn't necessarily going to say it's directly contributing to diabetes and obesity, I think the logic is just there. Well, this is what's so twisted about this story. Nutrition and obesity researchers will tell you that we get fat merely because we eat too much, okay? This is, you know, people will say calories in, calories out. The more calories, you can, if you consume more calories than you expend, that's what makes you fat. And a, a 
implication of this is that a calorie is a calorie is a calorie. That's a, a mantra of the obesity nutrition research community. When I wrote my first book on this subject 2000, back in 2007, Good Calories, Bad Calories, the New York Times health reporter who reviewed it for the New York Times book review criticized the book because she said it's clearly been demonstrated over the years that a calorie is a calorie is a calorie. So if this is true, then, okay, sugar is empty calories. It doesn't have any vitamins and minerals attached, but other than that, it can't be any more harmful than any other food. And the sugar industry has used this in its defense actively since the 1950s at least. So they'll say there is no such thing as a fattening food or a reducing food. It's all about calories, and there's nothing unique about sugar calories, and this is the conventional thinking. So as far as the nutrition and obesity research community is concerned, the only problem with sugar is that we consume too much of it. And they can't really define too much. You can only define too much if you're, you know, obese or diabetic or you've got sugar coming out your ears. One of the points I make in this book, okay, I'm, I'm not a physician. I don't have a doctorate. I am an investigative science journalist, and I got into the nutrition field in the late 90s because the science seems so questionable, and I've been in it ever since. So one of the points I make in this book is that this idea that a, a calorie is a calorie is almost in, incomprehensibly naive. So researchers have known for 100 and odd years that we metabolize fats differently than carbohydrates and differently than protein, and we know that obesity is very closely associated with this type of diabetes we call type 2 diabetes. And diabetes specialists know beyond a shadow of a doubt that proteins, fats, and carbohydrates are all metabolized differently, and they have to have different effects on insulin and these hormones that, you know, we have to worry about when you have diabetes. And yet when it comes to obesity, the story is supposedly a calorie is a calorie. And one of the things I'm trying to fix in this book, if such a thing is possible, is to get people to realize that this isn't the case and that you should actually expect the calories of sugar to, at the, certainly at the level we consume them, to have a metabolic effect that's very different from other carbohydrates. And there's a pathway, a mechanism by which you could see how it is the direct cause or could be the direct cause of diabetes and obesity. And diabetes and obesity, if you're diabetic or obese, you have an increased risk of heart disease, of cancer, and Alzheimer's. So the second and third to last chapters in the book are both called if-then problems, because if, if sugar sets us on this pathway to diabetes, which you could certainly demonstrate in animals effortlessly, it's a little harder to do it in humans because of the constraints of working with human experiments. But if it sets us on this path, then it also, at the very least, increases our risk of these other chronic diseases, including heart disease, cancer, and Alzheimer's. And people have to be talking about this, you know, which is one of the things that sort of up until the last 10 years, if you talked like I'm talking now, 
you were a quack and a scaremonger and, you know, pick your derogatory term. And if you even researched these subjects or wanted to, you wouldn't get funding to research. You were perceived as sort of a quack because everyone knew a calorie is a calorie. It doesn't matter. And now, you know, again, what I've been trying to do in my journalism and now in this book is get people to at least discuss these possibilities because they're, you know, if not highly likely, likely enough that they should scare the bejesus out of us. Absolutely. And what you are helping us to do in the case against sugar, being the science journalist that you are, Gary, you write it in such an interesting and easy to understand way. It's not going to be science jargon beyond our comprehension. These are really intriguing stories. That's where actually you could really scare us into making a change. <laughs> Truly. Well, and that's what, you know, obviously the goal of any writer is to tell a story in a compelling way. Um, I tend to sacrifice, I, I'm, I'm a fan of science, and I have always been a critic of bad science. My second book was called Bad Science. But, uh, you know, there's, there's some amazing stories in here, and there's some great history. I mean, sugar's got an extraordinary history, and, and um, talk about a checkered past. Uh, you know, the, basically the motivation for the slave trade was, sugar cane growing in the Caribbean um, in the, the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries. Um, I mean, just horrors were perpetrated in the name of sugar, which back then was sort of the, the you know, petroleum, the, the oil, the black gold of, the, of that era. Uh, fortunes were built on, and many of the richest people in New York City I think maybe I'm being a little passive-aggressive because I, I moved out of New York about five years ago to the, to the West Coast, so I like pointing out that, that many of the wealthiest families in New York got wealthy basically through the, the sugar trade and the, the triangular slave trade that sent um, slaves to Africa and traded rum for the, for the uh, black slaves. And um, the rum was made from sugar cane, and then the sugar went north to uh, the east coast of the you know, newly founded United States, and they sent back the supplies and the, the uh, food stuff that needed to be um, the Caribbean islanders, these sugar growers, needed to you know, keep going. So is the history of this product, and what's also fascinating about it is when you look at populations over time, it's clearly the case that populations will consume as much sugar as they could afford. And so as sugar got cheaper and cheaper, we could afford more and more, and we consumed more and more. And you have to ask yourself this question, are we dealing here with a, a nutrient that just tastes good? Or is this the story of a drug? Um, and there's a whole cluster of what the anthropologist Sidney Mintz called drug foods that came out of the Americas after Columbus, um, including tobacco and sugar and coffee beans and chocolate. And they went along with the, uh, the movement of other illicit substances in that era and kind of the stuff that empires were built on. And it's 
all part of this story of how we went this one plant originally from Indonesia through India through the Mediterranean to the Americas and then taking over the world and our diets and you know, this crazy health situation we have today. And to look at that health situation, because that is at the crux of a lot of this, all of it is so interesting. And I think that that kind of interest can draw us into a greater understanding. And then to realize when we look at the statistics and you show us these graphs of what diabetes was like, you know, in the mid 1800s, it was hardly a blip on the radar where and then it jumps like. 100%. 100%. More than 100%. More, Actually, yes. if you believe the CDC, now, numbers from the Centers for Disease Control, <clears throat> diabetes prevalence in the United States has increased 900% in the last 50 years, 55 years. Um, that's almost incomprehensible. So one of the, the, the question I'm trying to answer, the, you know, again, if you think of this as a, a legal uh, case rather than a, a public health issue. The crime that's been committed is you have these unprecedented epidemics of obesity and diabetes worldwide. So as you point out, um, as I point out in the book, in the 1850s, you can go back and find the hospital records for major urban hospitals in the 1850s, and they have, they have years where there's not a single case of diabetes. And then from those same hospitals post-Civil War, you start seeing diabetes cases appear, you know, two a year, four a year, 70, and it just continues to climb. So you could see that epidemic beginning in post-Civil War America, and then you could see similar cases everywhere you look in the world. In, in China, back at the beginning of the 20th century, there are doctors who estimated that there was, you know, one in 20,000 or 30,000 patients in a hospital, in hospitals, had diabetes, and today the number is hundreds of millions in China. Today the number in the U.S. is 1 in 11. There are some populations, uh, Native American populations, First Nations populations in Canada, where one in two adults are diabetic. So this has to be explained. Yeah, the conventional thinking, again, because a calorie is a calorie, is you, we say, well, you know, the diabetes explosion is blamed on obesity, and obesity, you'll hear this phrase, it's a multifactorial complex disease. And so it's a little bit of this, a little bit of that. It's sleep deprivation, it's uh, too much food, energy-dense, palatable food, it's uh, lack of act, physical activity, it's watching too much television, it's, um, you know, the antidepressants in the rainwater. I mean, you name it, there's a researcher out there who's proposed this as a possibility. And again, all I do in this book is I say, look, you know, again, thinking of this as a criminal case, everywhere this epidemic happens, the prime suspect is present and newly present. So you add sugar to any diet and any you know, reasonable amount, and you're going to get obesity and diabetes epidemics. And everywhere you get obesity and diabetes epidemics, there's you know, a, a recent increase in sugar consumption. And again, you've got this mechanism. You've got the gun. 
that sugar uses to commit the crime if it you know it is indeed the perpetrator and all these other possible suspects are what what happens to a research endeavor when they ignore the obvious and again that's a story that i'm trying to tell here on this the case against sugar why do we ignore the obvious suspect what's the evidence how did the sugar industry help manipulate the science and the pursuit of this science so that we would ignore the obvious suspect, which was its product? And again, you know, what does the science really say today once you get rid of some of these assumptions that we've been dragging along for 100 years that need desperately to be updated or thrown out? And that's where we need to be informed there's great education here. We can do the research, read the book, make the decision. We don't have to have our doctor uh, or the government say, okay, this is causing it because they're not. It's not going to overnight become uh, this uh, negative thing in our lives. So we need to take the responsibility for our own lives to be healthy. Well, and that's what um, the last chapter of this book about how much is still too much. And I discuss this question of, you know, can we do it in moderation? Can you, lean people will always tell you just eat in moderation. That's um, it's a little bit annoying because you never hear that from someone who's got a weight problem because somebody who's got a weight problem doesn't know what moderation means because they're going to get fatter even when they try to eat in moderation. Um, so the question is, how do you do it? Um, and what's the right amount for you, and is it better to go cold turkey, or is it better to cut back slowly? Is it better to try and, you know, just cut your sugar consumption in half and be happy with that? Instead of having dessert every night, maybe you have dessert twice a week. And all these things, of course, clearly, I believe any reduction is going to be beneficial. The advantage of we have in nutrition over other sciences is we can self-experiment. There's a long and glorious history of experimentation in nutrition research where researchers said, hey, I'm going to study this phenomenon. I'm going to change my diet and see what happens to myself. And then that will inform my research. So we can do that. And in this case, you know, Ultimately, I think the best thing to do is just to do it as an experiment. Um, and I'm kind of a fan of going cold turkey, perhaps because I used to be a smoker. And um, nobody ever tells you to smoke cigarettes in moderation or to try to get by only smoking two a day because they know it won't work. You know, we know cigarettes are addictive. Um, nobody tells an alcoholic to I'll just drink two a day, that'll be fine, because they know they won't be able to stay at two a day. So I'm a fan of going cold turkey. I'm a fan of saying, look, you know, it's a day at a time. I'm going to set one week to go without sugar, and at the end of the week, I'm going to try and go maybe make it a month. You know, if you say I'm going to go the rest of my life without sugar, a lot of people find that too intimidating, the challenge too hard. There's a little voice in your head that's saying, I don't want to go the rest of my life without sugar. But if you say I'm going to do it as an experiment, maybe see if I can get to a month or two months or three months and see how I feel. And if I feel better and if I have more energy and I'm 
slimmer and I, I don't know, my skin's cleared up or my eczema's gone away. Who knows? But see what happens. And then you can make an informed decision about the risks and benefits, the pluses and minuses of continuing a sugar-free life or at least a very low sugar. Although the problem, as you discussed, Kay, was um, because some form of sugar is in virtually every packaged food, um, to really give this product up requires, or you know, to give up added sugars entirely requires changing your habits, the way you cook, the foods you eat. Um, but you can still get rid of the clearly the bulk, you know, the, the major sources, which are you know the sodas and the fruit juices and the um, you know desserts. Clearly, the, the pastries and sugary cereals, etc. Exactly. As you said, shopping around the outskirts of your supermarket is going to help you immensely. Well, and this is what I've always found fascinating. If you look at all the major diet trends in America, again, we have these arguments about low-fat versus low-carb versus vegan versus, you know, ketogenic uh, they all recommend shopping on the outside aisles of the supermarket. Yeah, they all basically say don't eat highly processed carbohydrates and sugars. And then the question you have to ask yourself is the reason people get healthier on these diets if they stick to them because they're not what they had do differently, but because of what they share in common, which is they tell you not to drink soft drinks and not to drink you know, beers and not to eat sugary cereals and white bread, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, clearly there are ways we can improve our diets one way or the other. And if you start shying away from packaged processed foods, you will, by definition, start eating less sugar, um, regardless of what else you do in the diet. And if you try to stay away from sugar, you'll, by definition, be eating less packaged and processed foods so your diet will be healthier exactly and this is where the book the case against sugar really is i think a a great tool if you will to become more informed really get some of these inside stories which are really so fascinating and really establish that foundation for ourselves As you said, it's a great way to conduct the experiment, see how we feel. And uh, if we're on, there are so many people who say, you know, they're just at the verge of diabetes. If that changes, look at what a life-giving situation you've put yourself into. Well, and that's the thing. We have a, a, a medical establishment that thinks in terms of treating disorders. So they'll give diet advice. Uh, physicians will, but they're not, their heart is not in it. They're much better off at treating the symptoms of diseases after we get them, and particularly diseases. Diabetes industry, this is a, I mean, there's probably half a dozen classes of multi-billion dollar a year diabetes drugs. And, you know, again, from my research and I'm a journalist, I'm not a doctor, but from my research, the first thing I would do if I, my physician was diagnosing me as pre-diabetic or another technical term for it is metabolic syndrome is give up sugar and second thing would be to give up the the refined processed grain the white flour 
and and uh, the grains afterwards, but certainly giving up sugar. And there's there's a significant amount of evidence that you can, in effect, reverse this disease. Walk back from the edge, certainly, if you make these dietary changes. Yes, absolutely. Again, so life-giving. And here's another wonderful opportunity. You're going to be here later this week in our wonderful Puget Sound area. You'll be here on Friday evening, January 6th at uh, Town Hall, 730, right? I will indeed. I look forward to it. And a great opportunity to hear an expanded conversation on this topic and uh, potentially ask a question that might be burning inside of you because of this conversation. Yes, that would be great. Well, Gary Tobbs, this has been so interesting. I thank you so much for being the kind of inquisitive journalist, the writer that you are, and bringing such a fabulous book to us that really has the potential, it's the gift, to be life-giving to us. So thank you greatly. Thank you very much, Kate.